podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome back to another episode of Legendary Nights. Another fantastic episode for you, which... As per the last episode, the Durandi Zeus episode, this is going to be more a legendary tale. I mean, these are tales. We call it the tale of, don't we? And th- this is exactly what this particular one is going to be. We're going to be talking about the tale of Emil Griffith versus Benny Kid Perret. Now, this is a story that many people may or may not know about, but a lot of boxing fans may have heard of Benny Kid Perret for the reasons which we'll discuss throughout the course of the episode. And Emil Griffith himself is a boxing legend. So I think most people who listen to this podcast will know who these guys are for the for the reasons that we're going to discuss. But it's not essentially something that you would automatically think about as a legendary knight. And some might say it could be categorised as a, a tale of ecstasy and agony. And it's, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? And I think, I suppose, what we need to do to put this into context before we go into the story, Johnston, is, you know, we've got to, we've got to first of all, give a bit of a disclaimer on it because of the fact that there are some derogatory terms used throughout the course of this and we've not left them out of the story because it makes the story. So if you hear words that maybe you're a bit offended by, we apologise in advance, but it has to be told. It's part of this particular story. It's what makes this story as great as it is as an overall tale as 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 hard as it is to discuss the sad aspects of it there's so many different stories that i think people will really enjoy hearing about that they won't have known so it's been it's been great to put this together and johnston again as always you've done some fantastic work getting some of this information together and i'm really excited to do this one yeah as you say it is a towel it's a it's a great trilogy uh, between these these two but it, it obviously we have a situation at the end it's, it's just a towel it is a, it is a, it, and it is a legendary night it, it does get overshadowed and forgotten because of certain things we're going to go into but it's one that I believe needed to be told and I think I'm glad we're doing it I mean it could have even fallen in the dark side of boxing to be honest with you with the way this pans out just follow the story it's a cracker so as always then we're going to intertwine the careers of these two competitors and tell you a little bit about the backgrounds which led to their eventual collision course starting first with Emil Griffith who was born in St Thomas in the US Virgin Islands on February the 3rd 1938 and he made the move to New York as a teenager and during his teens he managed to get a job working at a hat factory owned by Howie Albert thanks to his cousin Adigo Lambert. Now the story of how Emil found himself in boxing is now stuff of absolute folklore and during the summer of 1956 the 18 year old Emil got permission from his cousin Adigo to remove his shirt. Now he revealed a 26 inch waist and muscled 44 inch chest which got the female hat packers in a bit of a sweat. Now Mr Albert had never recognised Emil before but witnessing his female workers becoming flustered and giggly he went over to see what was so amusing. When he saw the young strapping Emil working away without any idea that the people were looking he asked if he had done any boxing and Emil said sure. Now smiling at the question how he asked where expecting to hear the names of Stillman's or the Gleason's gym. Now Emil spread his arms wide and with a matching grin said, right here boss. Now thinking he meant boxing up the ladies' hats, his ambition was to be a 
ladies' hats designer. Now, Howie lifted his fists in a boxer's pose and he went, oh. And Emil said in disappointment, that boxing. Uh, great story there. Great start. So after a few casual workouts in the stockroom, Howie was so impressed that he entered him into the 1957 Golden Gloves tournament at Madison Square Garden. Now, he didn't reveal his plan to Emil, who was alarmed when he was actually summoned one day by a letter to the Daily News office for a medical examination. Emil actually picked up the phone and called his mum. He said, Mum, I think I'm being drafted. Now, when he uh, turned up for his physical, he was startled to discover that the medical was for a boxing tournament. Now, he had never heard of the Golden Gloves, and while boxing was better than the army, Emil felt disgruntled. His suspicions were that Howie was behind everything and they were confirmed the next day when returning to the storeroom. He was met by his boss who presented him with a new pair of boxing trunks. Now, he wasn't best pleased and he said that he wasn't interested. He would rather design flowery hats. Now, Howie changed his mind when he was informed that the girls in the factory that had seen him without his top and got all giggly, they'd actually put some money together to buy him the shorts. So Emil reluctantly accepted and how we sent him to Gil Clancy at the 28th Street Parks Department gym to get him ready for the Golden Gloves, which was only a few months away. Now, with very limited training, Emil proved that Howie had an eye for talent. He actually reached to the final, but eventually lost on points. One year on, and he became the national Golden Gloves Worldweight Champion. So moving on to Benny Kid Perret. Now on March the 8th, 1958, the 21-year-old who was managed by Manuel Alfaro and trained by Jose Caron Gonzalez, he actually fought Tony Amaranteros and beating him by a 10-round decision in Havana. So at this point, when we're moving to Benny Kid Perret's story, he's, he's already turned professional. He's already fighting. Now he's professional boxing career had started four years prior in 1954 with every fight taking place in Cuba. Now he was fighting at the £147 weight limit and now had a record that stood at 21 wins and only three defeats. His first loss came against Rolando Rodriguez in a second round knockout in November of 1956. But he did avenge that defeat by outpointing Rodriguez twice and knocking him out once in the next 14 months. His other defeats came against Jolimero Diaz over eight rounds and the future world welterweight champion from Cuba, Luis Rodriguez, on his return to Cuba. Now there was a dispute over the result of their first bout in Havana in February of 1958. In the ring May 1958 edition, Perret was wrongly reported to be the winner. The published records of both fighters in the ring record book 1959 and subsequent editions show that Rodriguez was the winner. Now Perret made his New York City debut in May 1958 with a six-round draw against Bobby Shell from Washington DC in the St. Nicholas Arena. Now he did well enough to return to St. Nick's on West 66th Street the following month and hammered out a 10-round points win over Eddie Armstrong. Now for five rounds, the smaller Armstrong, he gave a good account of himself but then the larger Perret took over and he won, clearly. So by November 1958, Perret was back in New York City, this time for good. He actually never returned to Cuba again. The St. Nick's matchmaker was Teddy Brenner. Uh, and he was uh, very interested in Perret. And on his return to the States, 
he, he arranged for a fight against uh, Andy uh, Figaro of Puerto Rico, and he knocked him out in two minutes and 19 seconds of that first round. Now, at that stage, Perret was actually now beginning to scale in at 154 pounds and looked like he was going to be developing into a middleweight. Now, a split decision victory over an unbeaten Argentinian called Victor Valazar, 15 over 15 knockouts as well, mind you. Well, that caught the eye with his fast hands and combination punching. Zalazar stayed with him for most of the way, but tried in the final stages in Perret's first ever main event in New York. Ironically, on the undercard was a welterweight named Emil Griffith. This was not going to be the first time they met. Biographer Ron Ross remembers how they first met. And he said Benny lived in a neighborhood near Emil, and they used to pass each other in the street. And they even played basketball together. Lee Brenner was so impressed with the first fight between Perret and Zalazar that he made the rematch the following month. This time, Perret won even more convincingly. And the AP or the Associated Press, they wrote, fast-punching Benny Kid Perret made it two straight over Victor Zalazar by soundly whipping the lean Argentinian in a 10-round slugfest. The Cuban whirlwind proved it was no fluke by earning the unanimous decision. There were no knockdowns in the action-packed fight, but Perret twice staggered his rival and was staggered once himself. Both were bruised and lumped around their eyes. Now, Emil Griffith turned pro on June the 2nd, 1958, and Gary Smith of Sports Illustrated explained what boxing did for him. And what he wrote was it gave him money for the first time and enabled him, after each pro fight, to fly one or more of his seven siblings up from the Caribbean to New York City and attempt to recreate something that had exploded in his childhood in St. Thomas. Now, this was back when his absentee father cleared out for good and headed to America, when his mother left to take a cooking job for the governor in Puerto Rico, and when his brothers and sisters were scattered like shrapnel, landing in the homes of their mother's relatives and friends. Now, on the night, Griffith shared a Brenner card with Perret at St. Nick's on West 66th Street, and he knocked out Larry Jones in five rounds of a scheduled six in his sixth professional fight. Emil soon became Teddy Brenner's favourite young fighter after his first 12 professional contests. Now, the matchmaker knew he could depend on Griffith's technical excellence, stamina and punch resistance to keep the fans hooked. So it was no surprise when Griffith fought his 13th fight at Madison Square Garden, where he picked up a 10-round decision over Kid Fanique from Cuba. Now, once again, he shared the same card with the headline act, which was Benny Perret. Now, back to Perret, who had decided to test the water in the middleweight division, but was made to rethink his next move after back-to-back points defeats at the hands of Cecil Shorts and Eddie Machine Gun Thompson. At this time, few would have predicted that Perret would turn into a world champion, but at least his crowd-pleasing style ensured him plenty of work. Those that were around during this time remember how entertaining Perret was, speaking in the documentary about Emil Griffith, Ring of Fire, which was directed and produced by Dan Clores with Ron Berger. Gil Clancy said, Perret was a guy that was very similar to Emil because he was very good fundamentally, but he did not have a big punch. The referee, Joe Cortez, he remembers, Benny Perret would take three or four shots for every one he gave. 
and Ron Ross agreed and he said he would take 10 to get in one. And so did Harry Albert and he said he could take 50 punches and land two. The journalist Pete Hamill described his style as having a toughness to him that said, keep hitting me, your hands are going to hurt and I'm going to win. <laughs> You're getting a gist of uh, how tough Benny was and uh, during sparring, Benny would actually allow his partners to unleash on him without much coming back from himself. His idea was to build up his punch resistance for his up-and-coming fights. Now, Ike Vaughan was one of those sparring partners, and he said, Benny will let you hit him several times if he thinks he can hit you back. Incredibly, none of his team, they tried tried to show him any different way of boxing, nor did they reduce the level of those brutal sparring sessions. And his manager, Manuel Alfaro, well, he had taken him from Santa Clara uh, in Cuba to New York and made him a champion. Lucy, who was Benny Perrette's wife, said that she'd never warned to uh, Manuel Alfaro because he just saw her husband as his cash source and acted like he owned him. Now, Edwin Pope of the Miami Herald spoke to Alfaro, and this is what he had to say about his sparring style. He said, Benny does not seem to feel punches. He lets his sparring partners abuse him as much as they like. I can sit him down in a corner and walk away and he will just sit there for three hours without saying a word. He might just listen to music and if you speak, he does not hear. You have to pinch him several times before he even looks at you. <laughs> I think there's some alarm bells ringing right there. When asked uh, if he was concerned about the damage Perrette was unnecessarily taking, Alfaro shrugged and said, we don't like him to do it that way, but he says it helps him to get ready for a fight. He trains one way and fights another. When we were in New York, some bookies came round to see him train against uh, Federico Thompson. They run out very fast and bet on Thompson. You know how that one came out? Perrette in 15. Now, after the demise of Friday Fight Nights, famously sponsored by Gillette, ABC decided to produce a show called Saturday Night Fight of the Week. Madison Square Garden would supply the overwhelming bulk of the promotions with Teddy Brenner at the helm. He was the Garden's matchmaker. Now, Perrette answered the call as a substitute for a substitute to fight Gaspar Ortega, who was 49-15-2. Originally, Ortega was to fight Florentino Fernandez, who withdrew with a virus. Then Charlie Scott, who was signed but he couldn't get into shape in time. Therefore, Brenner needed a reliable fighter to call on. So he chose the durable Perrette. Pete Hamill explained what made him the perfect fighter to feature on national television. And he said, as a fighter of the television era, he was, the, he was perfect for the people that was producing the television programme. They, these were the type of guys that they wanted on the TV. Now... He would last 10 rounds, which meant that you had 9 rounds of commercials before people changed the channel. The fight was shown live on Saturday night, Fight of the Week, at Madison Square Garden, with Ortega winning a split decision. But Perrette had proven his worth, with the United Press International acknowledging his performance by saying, Perrette displayed so much class last night while losing an unpopular split decision to Ortega that he earned a non-title shot at the welterweight champion Don Jordan. Unfortunately for Perrette, 
he did not meet Jordan until their title bout in Las Vegas the following year. Moving back to Emil Griffith, his next opponent was American Randy Sandy, who had defeated Dick Tiger in a dubious decision earlier in the year. The fight was held at the Academy of Music in Manhattan in front of a capacity crowd of 1,430 people. The New York Times reported, Griffith scored in the middle rounds but Sandy was strong in the 8th and the ninth round, as Griffith fell to his first professional loss by a split decision. Now, following back-to-back wins for Emil, he was given the opportunity to fight in front of his first television audience on February the 12th, 1960, at the Garden against Perrette's successor, Gaspar Ortega. Now, at the press conference before the fight, Griffith bought a dozen woman's bonnets and popped the fuzziest one of all on Ortega's head for the cameras. And there is a picture of this on the web which was released by the Associated Press with the caption underneath saying, Rest easy, America. The hat maker is no sissy. Now, the Associated Press also wrote this on the fight. The 21-year-old Griffith owns a split decision over the experienced Gaspar Ortega of Mexico after his first main event in MSG. Griffith got off slowly but came on strong in the middle rounds with his superior speed. It was a satisfactory performance by a youngster in his first garden main a go against a man ranked number eight among the welters. Just before Griffith defeated Ortega and after Perrette lost his controversial decision, he took a trip to San Juan holding the 1956 Olympian Jose Torres to a 10-round draw. Now, reports that returned to New York suggested Perrette who came in five pounds lighter, was unlucky. And Torres, who was, of course, managed by Customato, a great queer profile there, uh, was actually undefeated in 13 at the time. Now, in December, Perret further enhanced his reputation against Charlie Scott, who had won Ring Magazine's Respectable Progress Award for 1959. Well, Perret, unfazed by that, he jumped all over Scott, crowding him out, punching him and dropping him in the final round to take the decision. Although that result put Perret into the world rankings, there were those who considered it a fluke. His response was to do it again in front of 3,500 fans at the Garden on January 29, 1960. Many ringside observers felt that a draw would have been a fair result, but the flash knockdown in the fifth round was probably the reason for Perret getting that split decision win. Now, suddenly, Perret was ranked number four behind the world welterweight champion, who was Don Jordan. This is the same fighter whose promoter, Jackie Leonard, refused to play ball with Blinky Palermo and Frankie Carbo, and he was jumped on by a couple of thugs who gave him a good kick in uh, and then uh, petrol bombed his house. We did go into that with the uh, Mafia and boxing. Now, jumping back to Emil, and he fought twice at the Guardian in the space of just a couple of weeks, uh, originally defeating Denny Moyer, 24-1 by a split decision in a close fight. The unofficial ringside poll, 14 sports writers saw six writers scoring it for Griffith and five scoring it for Moya and uh, three scoring it a draw. The rematch was moved to the next month at the Pacific Livestock Pavilion in Portland, Oregon. And the Associated Press report explained Moya went after Griffith with both hands in the final rounds. Few fans, even in Portland, had seen Moyer jab and counterpunch the way he did in this fight. Griffith displayed power to punish, but seemed unable to bring it down on Moyer. 
Although the fist flew, neither boxer seemed able to inflict any damage on the other. The verdict was a split decision in favour of Moya. Now in between the Griffith and Moya fights, Perret fought a thrilling 12-round draw against Luis Federico Thompson, who had a great record of 121-9-9 at Madison Square Garden. Defeat would have cost him his chance to fight Jordan for the welterweight title. The unofficial ringside poll of 16 sports riders had it very close. Eight for Perret, six for Thompson and two scoring it a draw. After the fight, Federico Thompson was adamant that he should get the title shot over Perret, saying, I have more of a right to the title fight than Perret. I knocked out Jordan in a non-title fight and Perret hasn't fought him. Perret didn't beat me. It was a draw, but I think I won. Either I should get a title fight or a return fight with Perret. I'll knock him out the next time. Now, he threatened a protest to the New York State Athletic Commission, but it would fall on deaf ears as it was Perret who would be given a crack at the world title. On May the 27th, 1960, Perret challenged Jordan for the world title at the Las Vegas Convention Centre, the first world title bout ever staged at the venue. Now, it was also the first title fight in Nevada since 1910 when Jack Johnson knocked out James J. Jeffries in Reno. Now, to boost Perret's confidence, Fidel Castro, who had followed his career closely, sent him a telegram. Benny could not read it, but his manager, Manuel Alfaro, did. And it said, I won my revolution, now it's up to you to win your battle. Under the television lights, Perret eased his way to a comfortable 15-round unanimous decision using what the United Press International described as persistent body barrages. It was a disappointing showing from the former champ, but a perfectly executed game plan by Perret. National Boxing Association President Anthony Massarone said after the fight, Perret's first defence will be against Federico Thompson and the winner of that means Luis Rodriguez. That has been the NBA's plan for some time and that is the way it's going to be. So while Perret was collecting his first world title, Griffith recovered from his second career defeat with a split decision victory over Argentine Jorge Jose Fernandez with a, another good record, 75-3, and three, and that was back at the St. Nick's Arena. It was reported that the crowd of 1,261 booed the decision for more than five minutes. Three chairs were thrown into the ring and many of the fans who broke up other chairs in the stands were Latin Americans uh, and they were angry at that decision. Police finally brought order to the arena and the United Press International also reported again Griffith was the speedier performer throughout the bout but the stocky South American landing the harder punches and it was an excellent fight throughout. It would seem that Griffith was given a favourable decision, especially after 10 or 13 sports writers actually scored the bout in favour of Fernandez. Two scored it a draw and only one for Griffith. Definitely got away with one there. He, Emil felt like he did enough. He actually said, I, I know I won and I'll prove it any time he wants to fight me again next week if necessary. The decision from this fight had a knock-on effect for Perrette's next. When Teddy Brenner, who was hoping to match the winner with Perrette in the non-title fight at the MSG on July 12, 1960, he actually had agreed to an immediate rematch due to that controversy of their first fight. Now back to Perrette. Perrette 
was then matched against a guy called Gannett Hart in the first non-televised Garden main event in nine years on that, on that July 12th. Now, in front of a gate of 4,500, Perrette landed a right hand to Hart's jaw, sending into the canvas in the sixth round and ending the bout. After the fight, Hart said, when he hit me, the lights went out. And when they came on again, I felt myself being counted out. <laughs> Perrette's manager, Manuel Alfaro, spoke about the potential big name fights in the horizon. And he said, we're interested in Sugar Ray Robinson, Gene Fulmer, Paul Pender and Carmen Basilio in an overweight match, of course. Two weeks later at the Garden, it was down to Emil Griffith to put the controversial victory against Jorge Jose Fernandez to rest. The Associated Press wrote, Emil Griffith showed dazzling footwork and speed of hand, winning a unanimous decision over Fernandez in a non-televised bout at MSG. There were no knockdowns in this hard-fought rematch. The New Yorker jumped into an early lead, prancing around the ring and then opening up with quick combinations. After the sixth round, Fernandez lost the initiative to Griffith, who began to speed it up again. Now all three judges scored the fight 5-4 to four to Emil Griffith. Benny Perrette fought another non-title fight on August the 16th against a mutual opponent of Emil's in Denny Moyer, the number four ranked contender in the welterweight division at the time. It was lucky that there was no title on the line as Perret actually lost a very close decision. Low blows in the seventh cost him the round and inevitably cost him the fight. Perret knew the reason for his loss, but he praised his opponent by saying, the round taken from me cost me the fight. But Moyer is very good and very hard to fight because he ties you up at close quarters. I'll be glad to give him a title shot after I beat Federico Thompson. Now 11 days later, and it was the turn of Emil to entertain the MSG crowd when he took on Cuban Florentino Fernandez who was 27-1. Griffith staggered Fernandez with a right to the chin in the first round which opened a cut on his left eyebrow. The following round saw Fernandez docked a point for two low blows and again the fifth for persistent holding. Now Griffith was badly rocked in the 6th, but he came back in the 7th to burst open a severe cut to his opponent's lip and chin. Hurt again in the ninth, Emil managed to see out the fight and actually take a unanimous decision. Teddy Brenner now needed a durable opponent for one of his favourite youngsters. So he opted for the South African Willie Tawell, who was 46-5-2, a fighter he remembered in his earliest cards at the Garden. The winner was assured the chance to fight for Benny Perrette's world welterweight title. They met for the first time at a restaurant on East 53rd Street to conclude the deal. Now Willie was still suffering from a tragedy in the ring when he fought 21-year-old South African Hubert Esakau on 19th of March 1956 in defence of his South African featherweight title. Now Esakau sustained fatal brain injuries in the fight and he died 52 hours later after losing 2-2L by 11th round knockout. Now during the negotiations Willie was asked by reporters what it felt like to have killed a man. Willie's brother and trainer, Alan Tawell, answered most of his questions, but Willie responded in a sombre and touching statement, saying, I think of Hubert every day. I said mass for him again this morning. I will do the same again tomorrow. Now, Griffith, he refused to talk trash. Instead, he was gentle with his next opponent, clearly noticing his demons were still raw and spoke only of dancing 
and even consoling him, and consoled him by saying, Hey champ, we're nearly done. The fight was signed and agreed to take place at Madison Square Garden on October the 22nd, 1960. The New York Times reported on the fight. Griffith knocked Towell down in the fourth round with a right hand to the chin for a three count. Towell was knocked down once more in the seventh and twice in the eighth round. At the conclusion of the eighth, Towell was holding his stomach with both hands. The referee decided to stop the fight before the ninth on the advice of the ringside physician. Back to Perret, he finally made his first title defence on December 10, 1960 against Federico Thompson with that uh, 125 wins, 9 and 10 record. Great win there, uh, great record there. Now, he was actually unbeaten in his last 32 contests. He was absolutely no mug. The fight was the headline act at Madison Square Garden in front of a disappointing crowd of just 6,000 in the arena that held over 20,000. But those fans who did buy tickets, gate receipts, which estimated about $25,000, well, they saw an exciting battle. Perrette forced the pace, steaming in to land his body shots and fast combinations. But he had to ride several jarring left hooks to get into range. Again, taking punches to get one. Thompson suffered a cut in his upper lip in the fourth round and appeared to hurt Perrette in the eighth. But Perrette recovered and took the fight to Thompson. At the end of the fight, referee Arthur McCante had it 7-6 with the two judges both scoring it 9-6. Perrette had made his first successful defence of the world welterweight title and took 40% of the net and television money, which was $50,000, which earned him $16,000, his largest career purse. Now, afterwards, Perrette talked of defending his title once more. Emil Griffith had replaced Luis Rodriguez as the number one contender and then stepping up to the middleweight to fight either Gene Former, Paul Pender or Terry Downs. After a non-title fight against middleweight Jose Torres fell through, Perret, well, he had to score. He had a score to settle with that Mexican, Gaspar Ortega. But on February 23rd, 1961, two days before their rematch at the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles, Fidel Castro banned professional boxing in Cuba. Castro insisted that the professional fight business was a parasite of America, which would suck the blood from Cuba's finest athletes. Now, only amateur boxing was allowed in Cuba, Perret's native country, and any Cuban who defied the law would be imprisoned or commended to exile. Unsure whether he would ever be able to return to his native country, Perrette must not have had the right frame of mind going into the fight. He looked slow. He was heavy coming into the bout by more than seven pounds, apparently, uh, above that welterweight limit. Ortega took advantage and went on to win another close fight, but a well-deserved unanimous decision after 10 fast, hard and competitive rounds. So we'll now move in to the first fight between Emil Griffith and Benny Perrette, mentioning earlier that these two were on the collision course. Now, the first fight took place on April Fool's Day in 1961 at the convention centre in Miami Beach, Florida, in front of a crowd of 4,618. The referee was Jimmy Peerless, and the two judges were Stuart Winston and Bunny Lovett. Now, Benny Perrette, Cuba's only world champion, he was the betting favourite against Griffith, but were even at the fight time due to the late money on the American. In terms of age, height and weight, little separated Benny and Emil. 
They were both 23 and 5 foot 7 and a half inches tall. Emil had weighed in at 145 and a half pounds and Benny had scaled at 146 and a half pounds. Emil might have been fractionally lighter but he looked more imposing. His chest expanded to 43 inches while Benny's reached just 38. Emil's reach was also longer at 72 inches compared to 69 and his thighs were a couple of inches thicker. He was happy to be slimmer around the waist, 27 inches to Perrette's 29 and a half inches. Now Perrette had, at this point, fought 46 professional bouts with a record of 34, 9 and 3, and 24 bouts for Emil Griffith at 22 and 2. Now Emil's mother and his cousin, Bernard Forbes, were both sat at ringside being just as loud as the Cuban band who were eager to greet their world champion into the ring. The boxers were draped in traditional gear as they made their long walk to the ring. Griffith was clad in black, Perrette in white. Now, Emil Griffith bowed politely when he was announced as the challenger, while Perrette raised his arms and he actually did a little dance after being hailed as the world welterweight champion. They were brought together by the referee, Jimmy Peerless, who said into the booming microphone, Fellas, you've received your instructions this afternoon and I'm here to enforce them rules. When I tell you to break, I want you to break clean and watch yourself at all times. Shake hands now and come out fighting. So I'm going to go into the first part of the fight. We're going to break this down. You know, we've got three fights to cover and there's a lot of information in between. So I'm going to go from rounds one to nine and then Sean, you jump in and do 10, 12. So starting from rounds one to nine. Well, Perrette was the busier and more aggressive fighter in the opening two rounds. And he uh, shading the scorecards thanks to his quick feet and slick body punching. With the occasional clinching in a couple of the, a couple of the rounds, it prompted commentator Don Dumfrey to say, the referee Jimmy Peerless kept instructing break in both English and Spanish. Before the third round, Clancy instructed Griffith to switch the focus of his attacks to the body. Griffith came out in the second and shook Perrette with a couple of sharp crosses. Dumfrey suggested they're starting to hit harder. In other words, the fight was starting to liven up. In a big round for the challenger, he landed two left hooks and a short right uppercut that split Perrette's left eyebrow. The fourth was even, but the fifth went to Griffith as two sweeping right punches again hurt Perrette. He also pushed the champion back onto the ropes and outworked him on the inside, ending with a flourish as he landed lefts and rights to Perrette's draw. Griffith seemed to take a rest from the sixth to the ninth, which allowed Perrette back into the fight and the champion stole those rounds with a work rate alone. Now, Dumfrey, well, he told the audience as we approach in the, the tenth, there's a lot of science in this fight if you watch them in close. I'd say it's pretty close fight right now. Even if the champion has definitely taken charge at this point, both boys are pacing themselves to go the full 15. Moving into rounds 10 to 12, warned by Clancy that he was losing narrowly, Griffith edged the 10th round despite taking a massive left. He finished strongly with three right hands and a left just before the bell that hurt Perrette, sending him back onto the ropes. Griffith was back in the fight and Dunphy yelled, Listen to the crowd! He continued with his assessment on each fighter as they edged in to the championship round. And he said, I've got a problem for young Emil Griffith. He's never gone 15 rounds. 
Perret has gone 15 rounds twice. We're looking in on Perret's corner where there is a little bit of consternation. Perret has gone the 15 round distance against Federico Thompson and Don Jordan winning both of them. But Emil Griffith has never gone beyond 10 rounds. The television cameras swung towards the challenger's corner. There's Gil Clancy, Dunphy explained, as the trainer instructed Griffith while punching in the air with deadly combinations. He's giving Griffith the merry whatnot over there. Coming up to round 11 of a 15-rounder, and it's very, very close. Now, Perrette looked tired as Griffith caught him with right uppercuts to the head and body. Perrette fired back, but Griffith had still won an eventful round. Perrette emerged, rejuvenated when they came out for the 12th, and he out-hustled the challenger. Clancy had seen enough. He told Griffith how easy it was for him to get under Perrette's right hand and nail him with a left hook, which would win him the fight. And as his fighter looked down timidly, Clancy slapped Griffith across the face, which got his attention. Griffith looked up at the man who he considered a second father, and Clancy urged to him, Wake up, Emil! Don't you know you're fighting for the championship of the world? Get out there and start fighting. Going into the 13th round uh, with Clancy's words of encouragement ringing in his ears and obviously a sore cheek. Griffith came flying out of his corner with more vigour. Perrette kept him at bay for a minute until Griffith took a short step forward and threw a crushing left hook that caught Perrette square on the chin. The Cuban backpedalled briefly until Griffith nailed him with another hook, followed by a right. Perrette collapsed in a heap on his back. As Peerless started his count, the fallen champ managed to roll onto his side. But all he could do was gaze vacantly into the crowd. Perrette did not even try to move. He just laid there and allowed Peerless to, to count him out. As Peerless turned away, Emil Griffith, when he leaped straight into Peerless's arms, <laughs> who dropped him. Griffith turned his role into some sort of somersault half cartwheel, saw Gil Clancy and jumped on him. This time he was caught and they danced around the ring together. Emil continued to jump up and down and wave his hands in the air. Hysterical shrieking then broke out from the arena. Emil's mum came bursting into the ring screaming, my baby, my baby. Elmanda Griffith hugged her son and in overcome of emotion, promptly fainted only to be caught by Clancy and Albert. They managed to prop Elmanda up on a fighter stool while Howie fanned her down with a towel. And now of New York City, Emil, congratulations on a wonderful victory here in Miami Beach. It was a very great fight. What do you think about Benny Kid Perez? He's a good boy. Uh, tell me, he, he tagged you around the uh, sixth round with a right hand that seemed to turn the fight his way for a while. Do you remember that? Yes, I remember that, but uh, he didn't hit me. I went right back at him when he hit me, but he did hit me with a punch. Uh, did you follow the strategy all the way that you had? No, I didn't. You changed it once in a while. Yes. Well, here's the Gil Clancy who brought this young man onto the title. Don't go away. Here's Benny. Good luck to you, Benny. You're a fine champion. 
Uh, Gil, uh, tell us about the fight. Now, you've done remarkable uh, work with this young man. He was nowhere, I was telling the people, in the welterweight picture two years ago, and here he is champion. Tell us a little about him. Well, Don, he won the championship, I'd say, mainly because he works very hard at his profession. He's a very good, honest workman, and I think he's going to be a great champion. Well, good luck to you, Gil. Amo, uh, any plans? Have you got a return match contract with Perrette? Uh, we'll give Benny a, a, a return match. <laughs> this is a great, great little ending to the fight there for for Emil Griffith. Great punch and obviously a great win for him. So going into the aftermath of that first encounter, Emil Griffith had become the world champion, and Don Dunphy cornered Griffith and Glancy for an interview. And Griffith spoke first and said, "Thank you. It was a very great fight." And Dunphy asked, "What do you think about Benny Kid Perrette? And Griffith replied, "He's a good boy." Now, Perrette approached them quietly, and Griffith kissed him on the cheek, and Dunphy asked, Emil, any plans? Have you got a return match in your contract? Clancy responded, We'll give Benny a return match. We think he's a good, tough fighter. He was a good champion, and we'll be glad to give him a return. Emil and his team celebrated until the early hours of Sunday morning at Jimmy Grippo's nightclub on Miami Beach. Emil's championship purse helped to buy him a new house for all his family, his mum, Gloria, Franklin, his two other sisters, Eleanor and Joyce, his stepbrother, Colimero, and stepsister, Karen. And Gloria's husband, unfortunately, he was he was named Wilfred. He was shot dead in a street in Harlem. And he was also apparently a good friend of Emile's as well. So Emile used some of that money to help Gloria get their children in, into a house, which I thought was absolutely brilliant. Now, after the fight, moving into what this meant for Perrette, he admitted that he had experienced trouble in making the weight and he said he took off £8 in the final week. It cost him more than the title. He had been set for a lucrative European tour which would have earned him $160,000 for two fights against Delilo Loy in Milan and Brian Curvis in London. However, the offer was conditional on him holding the world title. There had been a rematch clause in Perrette's contracts against Griffith but Manuel Alfaro persuaded him to surrender it. In exchange, Perrette and Alfaro were paid $20,000 to step aside for Emil Griffith to fight Gaspar Ortega. Perrette and his manager were 20 grand richer and Alfaro had a cast iron guarantee that they would get the next crack at the champion. Perrette had fought so often and his head hurt so much that he needed a break. He kicked back at home with a shot of Hennessy and pineapple juice and a cigarette of camel with wife Lucy and his son, little Benny Jr. It was a well-deserved six-month layoff, with a rematch already set for September the 30th, 1961, and Perrette was hell-bent on revenge in the garden. In this time, Griffith went on to knock out Ortega in 12 rounds and take a 10-round decision two months before the Perrette rematch. So moving into the, to the build-up for this one, much more interesting build-up than the first fight. So a week before the Perrette rematch, Griffith was £6 over the £147 welterweight limit. So Emil spent much of that week pretty much starving himself. The fighters faced each other later that week at a uh, midtown gym near Madison Square Garden. They had met the press and taken part in a joint photograph staged by a guy called John Condon, the arena's publicity director. And it was all part of the Garden and ABC's determination to promote their fight as hard as they could. And Griffith entered into the spirit of it all, as did Perrette, who actually stripped down to his boxing shorts for the photo shoot. Now, everything seemed to be civilised between the two. 
although Benny was much more serious than normal. Now, by the morning of the bout, Griffith actually weighed in 148 pounds. So a quick 15-minute run brought him down to that exact fighting weight of 147. Now, trouble was, he could not eat anything before the weigh-in. Clancy only allowed him to suck on ice cubes all morning. Now, in the weigh-in, Perrette actually came in at 146 and Griffith 147 on the dot. Now, once the photos had been taken, Emil stretched out his hand to Perrette. The Cuban initially hesitated and then, without looking at him, he shook his hand mockingly. From what we're being told and what was saw, she could cut the atmosphere with a knife. It was dead quiet until a roar of laughter came from Perrette's side of the room. He was acting up in front of his team and portraying the motions of a camp man. So the Spanish reporters asked Perrette what he was doing. And so he mimicked the tone of Griffith's soft voice and said the word maricon, maricon. Spanish for the word faggot. Now Perrette turned and looked straight at Griffith with his hand on his hip and mocked him. Emil was embarrassed and he felt humiliated. Apart from his brother, Franklin, no one had ever dared ridicule him openly before. Emil pulled on his street clothes and told Gil and Howie they needed to eat and he needed to get out. And they just said, OK, Emil, Clancy said quietly, let's get out of here. Now, normally after a fighter mocking another fighter during the weigh-in, you know, it's just part and parcel of, of the sport. But this was the early 60s. And mocking a fighter about his sexuality was the lowest of the low, especially when the fighter was a closet homosexual. I mean, this is a period of time where it was very much frowned upon to to be homosexual, to, to be any part of a, a different way of life than what was considered normal at the time was really badly frowned upon. So to be mocked that way was really embarrassing. Now, Emil had not come out about his sexual preferences. And why should he have done? Those within boxing circles, they had their own suspicions, but nobody ever dared raise their uncertainties with Emil. Bob Jackson, a New York City trainer, said, We're like the police, the blue wall, there's a code. We might talk among ourselves about it, but nobody would talk in public about something like that. Nobody, except a desperate man. Even Sugar Ray Robinson said, It was irreconcilable to be homosexual and a world champion. Says as long as he was beating the shit out of people... It gave lie to the slander. You couldn't confirm it. You couldn't deny it. You just had to put it over there. Now, Emil had a girlfriend to disguise his sexuality, Esther Taylor. They met when they were both young, growing up on the streets. And he also had a good friend called Calvin Thomas, who he would call my running buddy. Calvin and Emil never trained together. Instead, they would secretly travel around Times Square, along 42nd Street and outside the Port Authority bus terminal. They knew that some men would shout out faggot or called them fucking fairies as they wandered around the seedy joints that they loved to visit. And so they had to be very careful. Sometimes their secret was rumbled and they were spotted. But few men would ever insult Emil due to his muscular physique. Calvin though, he was short and a little bit pudgy with a bit of a belly. He was an easier target. But appearances can be deceiving because he was a lot tougher than he appeared. He was a colourful character that was supposedly fun to be around, but Calvin also carried a lead pipe in his bag. Emil had once seen him reach for the pipe when a homophobic tried to taunt him. Calvin shouted, You want to fight? Pulling out his bat, and the guy backed down pretty quickly. Now, Calvin was Emil's best friend and protector who loved his boxing. 
He knew the game intimately and hung out at the city's best boxing gym, especially Gleason's, where Benny Kid Perret trained. No one at Gleason's ever said a word to Calvin about his sexuality, and he was allowed to sometimes man the front door and collect the monthly dues. But most of the time, Calvin, he just ran with a meal. Crazy. I mean, it's so difficult. You can understand why he kept that under wraps. But I'm going back to the, 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 the rematch now, the, and it was on uh, September 30th, 1961 at Madison Square Garden in New York, and you had 23-year-old, then 23-year-old, and Mill Griffith, who was 25-2, and two, and Benny Perrette, who was 34-10-3, a year older. Now, they were ready to engage in another thrilling battle. The third man in the ring was agreed as Al Berg, and the two judges were Tony Castellino and Artie Idala. Now we're going to go into the to the rematch. Uh, I'll break it down from one to fourteen. Now Griffith, well, he looked the stronger fighter over the course of the first five rounds as he bullied Perrette and snapped his head back and forth, but would then ease off and allow Perrette to outwork him. The fourth round was Griffin's best. He backed Perrette against the ropes and pummeled him to the point where his white mouth guard actually bulged out of his mouth. 30 seconds were left in that round as Griffith ripped punches into him, but Perrette, he hung on. And just before the bell, he actually fired back a common feat from Perrette. The Cuban was much more effective on the inside using his uh, body punch into good effect. Emil Griffith pretty much explains how this fight went from rounds 1 to 14. And he said, it, I went after him, he was coming after me, and we were punching each other like crazy. That was pretty much what that fight's like. It's a cracking fight. In the 11th, Griffith punished Perrette, who looked close to going down. And they were both looking for moments of rest and did clinch a lot while grappling on the inside. But it seemed to be heading... In Griffith's way, was it a bit of a 50-50 really? I mean, you could have threw it up for anyone. So moving into the championship round then, at the start of that round, which marked the first time Griffith would complete the championship distance, Perrette gave him a quick slap on the gloves as referee Al Burl brought them together. Now just before the final bell, they stood toe to toe and they were just landing vicious punches on each other and it was just very similar to their first fight. Essentially, it was like carrying on from where they left off the first time round, going all the way into the 15th round. Now, moving into the verdict, Perrette's trainer, Joe Maria, was the first in the ring at the sound of the final bell. He charged across to Perrette, certain that they had won this fight. Griffith, he simply raised his right arm before he turned back and tapped the kid kindly on his head. He had fought with dignity and discipline, apparently having forgiven Perrette's behaviour at the weigh-in. The Cuban, in turn, remembered his manners. He stretched out his arm to Clancy and Albert in acknowledgement of a hard fight. Johnny Addy announced the split decision. Judge Tony Castellano, 8-6. One even. Perrette. Griffith began to pace, walking backwards in disbelief, down the length of the ring while booze cascaded round him. He then walked forward again towards Clancy while he waited for the next score. Judge Arthur Idala, 9-6. To Perrette, Brenny Perrette jumped up in the centre of the ring. By the time he had landed, Griffith had arrived to embrace him briefly before departing out of the ring as Addy made his last announcement. Referee Alberl, 8-6, one even, Griffith. Di Maria and Alfaro raised Perrette on their shoulders to celebrate while Griffith, swallowing his hurt, returned to the ring to congratulate the new 
world champion again. Perrette nodded and grinned, and years later, Gil Clancy gave his assessment on Griffith's performance in that second fight, and he said, I thought Emil fought a lazy fight, but I still thought that he had won the fight, but he left it in the hands of the judges when there was no reason to do so. Congratulations, Benamino. Uh, it was a uh, fine fight all the way. I want to ask him, uh, uh, did he think he was winning all the way? Tell me, did Griffith hold him on the inside when he held him against the ropes early in the fight? Pese que si Griffith te latimó cuando estaba dando la ropa. En algún momento me latimó. Nothing. He says Griffith didn't have any kind of punch at all to hurt him. So now Manny is a return by contract. No, no, this is no return by contract. We can fight anybody else we want. Well, will you fight Griffith? I will not have to fight him, but if they pay me well, I'll fight him again. We're going to try to get as many fighters as possible out of the championship, and then we fight for the champion again. Well, I'd just like to say congratulations on Danny and Caballero Valiente. So the, after, the, the rematch aftermath and uh, Don Dumfrey, well, he brought Perrette and his manager in front of the ABC cameras with millions watching for that post-fight interview. And Alfara indicated that he would translate. And Dumfrey asked, tell me, did Griffith hurt you on the inside when he had you on the ropes early in the fight? Perrette shook his head disapprovingly as Alfaro spoke in Spanish. The kid answered quickly, nothing. Alfaro then said in English, he says Griffith don't have any kind of punch at all to hurt him. He then said, I thought I won. He was throwing leather in there, but I thought I had him hurt and I thought I beat him. I was determined to win it back. I went back to the gym. I started training better. And Dumfrey asked, is there a return bout in the contract? And Alfaro, well, he shook his head. No, there is no return bout. Uh, no return bout in the contract. And we can fight anybody we want to. And Dumfrey, well, he asked, will you fight Griffith? And Alfaro replied, on behalf of Perret, I do not have to fight him. But if they pay me well, I will fight anybody. Griffith in the other corner, well, he looked majorly disappointed and him and his team were both insisted that they would happily give Perret a rematch in their first fight. So, you know, it made sense to get this, to get a rubber match on. Afaro and Perret were even more bullish uh, when they got out of the ring. They heard Gil Clancy angrily talking and he said, we were robbed without a gun. Now, as the press swarmed around Alfaro and Perret, a new world champion, informing them that the overwhelming majority actually believed that Griffith had won the fight. The Cubans laughed. Someone from the press asked, any chance you'll give Griffith that rematch he deserves? And Perret grinned while Alfaro spelled out in a bleak message, nowhere, no how, no place. Eventually, Perret would have no choice but to give Griffith a rematch. The fans would demand a decider, particularly after a ringside survey of reporters covering the fight showed nine scoring for Griffith and only three scoring it for Perrette. So before we get into that third fight, of course, these two guys would continue on throughout the career before that final collision clash. And Emmanuel Alfaro agreed for his welterweight champion to make the move up to the middleweight division. He'd done it once before. He was going up again to face world champion Gene Fulmer, who was now 54-4-2 at the convention centre in Las Vegas on December the 9th, 1961. Now, Perrette only agreed to the fight when he heard the terms Alfaro had apparently negotiated. 
There was talk of a $250,000 paycheck in an offer made by Fulmer's manager, Mary Jensen. But by the time that was divided up, Perrette would only see half of his share. But it was an offer he could not refuse. Donald McRae, the author of A Man's World, The Double Life of Emile Griffith, described the horrific beating that Perrette sustained against Gene Fulmer so accurately that we've actually extracted his dialogue from the book from round 10 onwards. And this is what Donald McRae wrote about that fight. At the start of the 10th round, Fulmer had begun to hit Perrette so hard that the sound of his gloved fist smashing into the flesh and bones made a doleful thud. Perrette sank back against the ropes and Fulmer went to work with even more menace. He landed a concussive combination that made Perrette reel towards his own corner. Fulmer piled into him and Perrette crouched down woozily. Each time he bent, Fulmer straightened him with a savage uppercut. Perrette could not stay upright for long and he would crumple again, only to fall into another uppercut which snapped him awake. The poor Cuban sugarcane cutter slid down onto his haunches, almost as if begging for refuge. Perrette got up and was stung, strung up again near the ropes. In Fulmer's favourite corner and the beating, it resumed. Suddenly, like a dying beast kicking out in desperation, Perrette fought back. He threw a series of fast punches that made Fulmer pause in his butchering. Those rallies take something out of a fighter, Don Dunphy warned Perrette's supporters on television. And so, let's see what happens. Fulmer clubbed Perrette even more ferociously as Dunphy was hushed into silence. Eighteen unanswered punches smashed into Perrette, with Fulmer breaking up his deadly routine by switching from the head to the body and back again. Eventually, with a gruesome slide, Perrette collapsed onto the canvas after a left following a succession of right hands. Perrette forced himself to rise. His arms were down, his mouth was open and his eyes were glazed. He looked vacantly into the distance. The referee, Harry Krause, clapped his hands as if to say, let's get this done. Former, he did not need an invitation. He hit Perrette with a right hand that landed just below the waistband. He followed it up with a roundhouse left that landed flush on Perrette's jaw. And Former hit him again with an explosive right hand and Perrette fell on his back. He supported himself on his right elbow and stretched out his left hand, holding onto the ropes, as if afraid that Former might hit him again and Krause continued to count to ten without Perrette even trying to move. After it was over, Perrette got to his feet once more before falling again. I mean, that extract from Donald McRae's book on Emile Griffith's life is its quite harrowing. It's, harrow, it's a mm-hmm. harrowing description of the, that particular fight and how much of a beating that kid Perrette suffered. I mean, that was one hell of a beating. By the sounds of it, one hell of an absolute beating. And already makes you start to wonder if you know this tale already as to what this was going to lead into and and where the subsequent issues would come from but my word this was one hell of a one-sided beating i mean he's he's had two really tough fights with emil griffith already and gene former bigger than him a proper monster at middleweight against perrette who was just sort of like a just slightly over 
the welterweight limit. You know, he would have gone one five four today. He would never have jumped into the middleweight division and took on someone so so uh, such a hard punch. But the description there that you just read, Sean, I think it had to be put in because I think it gets people the idea of what this fight was like and how much of a one sided beating it was. And and you know, you read it well, and and also it was beautifully written as well. But the one sided beating was such a distasteful watch for the New York Times writer we've mentioned earlier, Pete Hamill. And he actually concluded that I remember being with some people watching it on television and thinking, this is a career ender. You can't take that kind of beating and be the same fighter again. Some of your will has to be eroded away by it. And you can't help but agree with that. And then Hamil then gave an excellent comparison to the effects that Perret had would have received after that form of beating. And he said, you end up like a car that's been in a crash. It's been taken to the body shop and they make it look good, good again. But it's not. It's something internally wrong with it. And it's never the same again. And then later reflecting mournfully on a massacre of a fight, Gene Fulmer actually admitted that I never hit a guy so many times before he went out. I never beat anyone worse in my life than Benny Kid Perret. His next opponent is going to be in three and a half months time. And it would be against Emil Griffith for that world well awake title the rubber match and uh, referee joe cortez actually spoke about perrette fighting griffith in that rubber match much earlier uh well he, he mentioned the fact that he, he took the fight too early than he should have done and, and joe cortez said a fighter takes a sound beating it's very difficult for you to come back they as in the boxers managers they intend to give you an easy fight to build up your comfort confidence again and put you back on track but he was just thrown in against one of the toughest opponents in his career against Emil Griffith and just you know we've gone into a lot of detail about the former fight because it does have a huge significance and how this ends this this legendary nights so just going back to Griffith slightly he actually fought three times during this period uh, before that third meeting with Perret and he won all three one by a knockout and two on points so we're going to move into this third and final fight the rubber match between the two and as you've rightly pointed out you've set the context as to what led into this particular fight Benny Kipperet's getting thrown straight in against Griffith whereas Griffith has had three fights in the interim while Benny Kipperet is recovering now Griffith he trained at the Catskills for this fight he woke up every morning with Perret in mind determined to show him that he wasn't just a maricon he buried himself into training and even accepted Clancy and Howie's suggestion that his secret boyfriend Matthew does not visit him while focusing on getting red himself ready for Perret. The Cuban welterweight champion got himself ready for the rubber match at Esan's training camp, which is a town in New Jersey's Union County. In the early mornings, he ran along the river road and then up and down Snake Hill. Gene Former had hit Perret so hard that his head throbbed for weeks afterwards. Alfaro waved away suggestions that Benny should see a doctor or have his brain x-rayed. Benny just needed a break. Alfaro insisted and a three and a half months outside the ring would help. Now in the week leading up to the decider, the press gathered at Perret's training camp. Alfaro spoke as the translator and this is what was said. I hate this kind of guy. A fighter's got to look and talk and act like a man. What kind of fighter wears the kind of clothes Griffith does? What kind of fighter talks like that? What kind of fighter hangs around with the people he does? Alfaro flopped a limp wrist at the reporters, making them laugh, spelling out his meaning without saying the words they could not print in 1962. Perret continued talking in Spanish, prompted by his manager. 
Where I come from, it's important to be a proper man and a proper fighter. When I was a kid, I wanted to be like Kid Gavilan. He was a real fighter. And more than anything else, he was a real man. He knocked out men and loved women. The New York Daily Post described Perrette's mood in the paper that week and they said, In the tiny airless cubicle at Eason's training camp, his hatred of Griffith was direct. But it wasn't simple. Before the reporter left, the fighter said to be sure to be at the weigh-in Saturday morning. It should be fun, Perrette said almost grimly. Oh dear. And so Dr Alexander Schiff of the New York State Athletic Commission. Well, he checked both fighters' blood pressure, their pulse rate, reflexes. He uh, shone a small light into their eyes and asked them basic questions to ascertain their mental health well-being. He could see no problems, apparently. So Emil Griffith and Benny Kid Perrette were declared fit to fight. The last thing to do now was iron out the referee and the judges' situation. Howie Clancy, the New York State Athletic Commission and Manuel Alfaro would add the shortlist of officials to agree. Now they were certain that Ruby Goldstein should take charge of the fight. He was the finest referee in the world at that point and, he, and this was boxing's biggest fight of that year. Alfaro moaned about Goldstein's tendency to be too cautious and reminded everyone that in Perrette he had a fighter with extraordinary punch resistance. He did not want Goldstein stepping in too soon, as he had done when stopping Cassius Clay's fight with Sonny Banks. But he reluctantly accepted Goldstein after Clancy made a convincing argument, uh, using examples of his rescue of Joe Lewis uh, in his last fight against Rocky Marciano. And they also appeared on the Ed Sullivan show alongside Sugar Ray Robinson, where his compassion as the third man in the ring was actually praised. He was chosen, as was Tony Ross and Frank Forbes, who were elected as the judges. Now, Perrette's wife, Lucy, described her mood of Perrette, and she said he was hurt after the former fight. He should have never been fighting Emil Griffith at that time. Now, while Lucy worried about her husband, Emil Griffith was in fear of what Perrette might do at the weigh-in. Emil told Clancy, if he says anything to me before the fight, I'll knock him out. Now, Clancy came down on him hard warning him that he would ruin five weeks of brutal work if he lashed out too early at Perrette. The commission would fine him and they could even ban him from the ring. He needed to control himself. On the day of the weigh-in, everything seemed to be running along smoothly. That was until Emil stepped on the scales. Clancy shouted, Watch out! But it was too late. Benny had already slipped behind him, wriggling his body, thrusting his pelvis and grabbing Emil's ass. Emil turned around and Perrette waved a finger at Griffith, reached out to touch him and spoke in his own language. But it was basic enough for Griffith, who understood some Spanish. Hey, Maricon, I'm going to get you and your husband. The Cuban's corner roared. Emil was about to hit Perrette harder than he had hit anyone before when Clancy dived between the fighters. Save it for tonight, he begged. The trainer needed all his might to hold Emil as Perrette baited him. Emil managed to find restraint and relax to the point that he wanted to cry. He couldn't believe that Benny Perrette had done it again. While Emil left in a calmer manner, but with his blood still racing, Perrette, the antagonist, left feeling empty and lonely. He remembered how just four days before he left for his training camp, his pregnant wife Lucy had held him when he had cried. They had taken little Benny Jr. to the zoo in Miami, but at the entrance, they had been turned away. You're coloured. Benny and Lucy had been told bluntly it was hard to take 
and Lucy had been stunned when, as they left her husband, rather than their small son, had shed tears. Now, Benny, needing Lucy by his side, he tried unsuccessfully to persuade her to leave Miami with him so she could watch him retain his title. But for weeks, Lucy had dreamed, scary dreams of Benny being hurt and she couldn't shake the images from her head. She kept her feelings secret. And Perrette unexpectedly telephoned Lucy the night before the fight and she remembered. He called me the night before the fight and said that he didn't feel good and he didn't want to fight. But Manuel Alfaro said that he had to fight. Lucy asked, can they not do anything? Can they stop the fight? Benny Perrette replied, no, because there's too much money that's already gone in. I've got to fight. Now Perrette had already decided that the rubber match will be his last prize fight. But I'm sure he would have never dreamed of what would happen next. Oh, it's chilling, isn't it? That phone call. I mean, his wife, that documentary with uh, Mill Griffith's life is on YouTube. You can go and have a look at it and you can actually see Lucy describing the conversation she has with her husband just before he goes into this fight. And it is quite chilling to think everything, uh, all the alarm bells are ringing there and just shows you how poorly managed Benny Perrette was managed. So come to the morning of the fight. And Griffith and his boyfriend Matthew, well, they walk through Times Square where men, women, drag queens, hookers, junkies and shop owners apparently all called out to him, wishing him good luck, champ. Now, normally he would have stopped and spoke to his fans, but this time he just raised his fist to his people and walked on because he would be fighting for them too. Now, following the shenanigans at that weigh-in, It had been hard for the press to know how to write about the incident, knowing that homosexuality was forbidden territory on the sports pages. So Howard M. Tuckner of the New York Times, he made an attempt reporting cautiously that the challenger had been subjected to a slur about his sexuality. Now, unfortunately, just before 9pm, while ringside at Madison Square Gardens, Tuckner, well, he was enraged with the idiots working in the New York Times. The Times subheaders had actually replaced the offensive word of homosexual with the meaningless phrase unman. Tuckner could not believe it. And on his way to the fight, he had picked up the paper and by that byline, it read Perrette had accused Griffith of being an unman. And, and Tuckner, well, he shouted out in disbelief at his closest associate. It was at the New York paper at the time. And that was Pete Hamill. Our man, what the fuck is our man? He said, A butterfly is our man, a rock is an our man. <laughs> you know, this is uh, again, it's going back to the time, isn't it? Like homosexuality, it's a, a very, um, it's a very <laughs> sort of dark topic to be talking about at this time. It's forbidden, you're not allowed to speak about it, you've got to be careful about how you report on it. And this guy he felt like he had the right and appropriate way of reporting on it. And someone just comes along and decides, you know what, we're just going to change this word slightly because it's too offensive. Uh, I can understand that, but still, it's <laughs> unmanned, unmanned, unmanned. What, what the hell is unmanned? It's a absolutely piss poor uh, choice of a word, isn't it? to uh, to be oh, able to describe much. that situation. But it, it leads us nicely into this rubber match and we are going to break down this particular fight. We are going to go through the rounds as we always do. But just before we do that, the blue nicotine fog, as Pete Hamill called it, of 7,600 men in sports coats and ties descended over the ring at the old Madison Square Garden. The champion was dressed in a beautiful white satin gown with the name Benny Kid Perrette stitched in black on the back. 
His challenger wore a gold robe with a meal griffith printed in stark letters. After a rousing rendition of the national anthem and Johnny Addy's grand introduction of both Griffith and Perrette, Ruby Goldstein called the two fighters towards him. Goldstein repeated his instructions of a good clean fight and asked them to touch gloves. But Griffith just backed away, evading any contact with the man who called him a maricon. So going into the fighting, rounds one to two. They uh, started cagely with 30 seconds of basically jabbing and fighting each other. And Griffith then landed a sharp combination, uh, a left jab and an overhand right. Perrette tucked in, crowding his opponent and tried to slow him down with some of those early body shots. Griffith pushed him back and landed a solid right that rocked the kid's head. Griffith was much sharper and more accurate. He looked deadly serious as he backed up the champion and shook him with another right hand. Griffith bullied and he pummeled Perrette again in a second, with the Cuban relying on counters to reduce the aggression. Don Dumfries sensed there was something different about Emil Griffith at the end of that round, and he said it looks as if Griffin is trying to is trying to go for the knockout, while Perrette is hoping to win on a decision, as he did the last time. Then returning to his corner, Perrette pushed the white gum shield out of his mouth and he sat down heavily on the stall. Joe D. Maria, his trainer at the time, tried to reduce the swelling on the right side of Perrette's face. So moving into round three to five, the third was worse for Perrette. A small cut began to weep beneath his puffy eye and as he absorbed more punishment, Dunphy wondered if the damaging effects of the former fight could be seen in Perrette. Griffith's punches looked vicious as he brought new malice to his work. Perrette was more effective after a minute's rest and the fourth round was an intense affair as they swapped hard combinations. For the first time in the fight, the champion snapped back the head of his old rival with an uppercut. The Cuban was soon backed up again and he began to bleed above the cheekbone. Dunphy had suggested that Perrette's a good game fighter and he sometimes appears hurt when he really isn't. The champion began the fifth more brightly, but midway through the round, he walked into a short left that stunned him. Griffith followed with another combination that sent the Cuban reeling backwards, but Griffith was stopped in his tracks as Perrette came back at the body. They finished the round by trading blows. Moving into round six to the nine, and in the sixth, it was Perrette who began to land more blows in Griffin's stomach and his jab was suddenly more accurate and aggressive. Griffin retreated slightly and began to box more cautiously. He scored a few solid punches and Perrette was back on the ropes, but landing the cleaner blows. The shift was completed with 20 seconds left in a round when Perrette landed a right uppercut and then nailed him with a monstrous left hook. Griffith is a great knockdown. Griffith collapse, collapses in the corner. His left hand hung over the ropes and he used his right glove to rise. It was a bad knockdown. And even though Griffith was up at the count of six, he looked disorientated. The round is almost over, but I don't think he knows where he is, Dumfrey yelled. As Goldstein gestured them to fight on, Griffin staggered towards Perrette. And that's when the bell sounded, rescuing him from a very, very, very likely knockout. That fight would have been over if that bell did not ring. Gil Clancy and Sid Martin went to work in the corner while Howie Albert just watched on anxiously. They doused Griffith with cold water and then Clancy stopped the bleeding from his fighter's nose and began to talk calmly. A wave of smelling salts which Martin sneaked in from the side made him snort 
and shake his head. Clancy reminded him that he had to keep punching. It was crucial that he did not start, stop throwing punches until Perrette fell. He got in Emil's face and he actually shouted, Emil, look, when you go inside, I want you to keep punching until Perrette holds you or the referee breaks you. But you keep punching until he does that. Griffith, well held and, and he, he grappled and he pushed and he did everything he could early in that seventh round as he waited for his head to clear which it did and Perrette was went searching for that knockout he missed by wild shots and Griffith by now had completely recovered they swapped blows at the bell and Griffith pushed Perrette angrily as they parted their, to their corners Griffith edged the eighth and the ninth rounds as, as they both took a little breather between punches but each time that bell rang they pushed and they shoved each other after the bell Around 10 to 11, Perrette landed a low blow to start that 10th. But after being reprimanded by Goldstein, he raised both arms above his head in apology. It was a reminder of the needle between them. Griffith stopped Perrette with increasing malice as he began to hit him often as punches rained down on him. Perrette's mouth opened involuntarily and his head sagged. One blow after another connected with a shuddering force as Griffith picked his punches carefully. Perrette survived and Griffith eased off for the rest of the round and much of the 11th. Before the start of the 12th round, Perrette, as usual, was up first. He danced lightly while waiting for the bell and Griffith remained on his stool until the bell rang. So moving into round 12, they both went in search of the body but Perrette held more often and the referee had to instruct them to break. Dunphy said, unknowingly, they seemed to be pacing themselves for what might be a furious finish. Two minutes left in this round... Griffith forced Perrette into a corner, but the Cuban escaped. He was then backed up again, but he managed to hold Griffith off a little longer, and Dunphy grumbled. This has probably been the tamest round of the entire fight. Two short and vicious right hands from Griffith landed on the commentator's curse. Perrette wobbled backwards. Griffith saw the damage and leaped forward, throwing another right, a left and right, followed by another combination. Perrette buckled, and in that moment, Griffith might have stepped back and allowed the champion to fall. But he didn't. He did what he was instructed to do by Clancy after round six. An uppercut made Perrette sag a little more and Griffith used the right hand to hit him again. Perrette tried to hold his guard up but his arms were too weak. They fell limply to his sides. Perrette turned side on away from Griffith so that he was propped up by the ropes. Griffith now had a clear and open target of Perrette's flopping head. Each one of his punches landing with force. Griffith threw the right hand again and again and again and again, making Perrette's head rock back and forth. He used his left arm to pin Perrette against the ropes while his right uppercut connected one punch, followed another, in one of the worst visions in a boxing ring you will ever, ever see. Emil actually said years later about that moment, when I had Perrette in the corner in the 12th round, I was very angry. Nobody never called me no faggot before. goes down from sheer exhaustion. Look at him there. As his hand is to his mouthpiece out. Dr. Schiff is coming over to look at him. Perrette has collapsed from exhaustion from that beating on the ropes. And Dr. Alexander Schiff of the commission is trying to get at him. What a moment that is in boxing. What an infamous moment in boxing history. Oh my goodness, mate. It really is one of the hardest watches you'll ever see. Uh, if... if 
you know, I, I wouldn't blame anyone if they didn't want to see that final round because it is absolutely just horrowing. It really is. And and we'll, we'll go into the, the, the fatal ending. Uh, I mean, Ruby Goldstein, he stood by and he watched. He was frozen. He finally snapped out of that stunned daydream and leaped between the fighters at last. Now, Benny Perrette, he slid down. His eyes began to close. His right arm was trapped against the ropes while his left spread out in a surreal crucifixion. It really is. It's, it's, it's horrowing. It just it just sends goosebumps. Just, oh, it, it, it's awful. Uh, Dumfries screamed down the microphone. Perrette sags to the canvas. canvas. Perrette goes down with sheer exhaustion. His corner obviously raced into the ring and Di Maria opened Perrette's mouth and pulled out that bloody gum shield as he lay unconscious now. Dr. Schiff attended to him uh, concerned about his condition, as everyone else was. Johnny Addy announced the winner by knockout while Perrette was on the canvas, still unconscious. The welterweight champion of the world, Emil Griffith, as if he didn't know. The new champion raised his arms and smiled happily with Gil Clancy at his side. Then noticing what was happening in the opposite corner, his face changed. Griffith walked over to check on Perrette, but he was refused access. At ringside, Casper Ortega, who had fought Perrette and Griffith, was distraught at the sight of a counted 23 unanswered blows. They actually began to cry. And he does. He speaks about this in the documentary. And even talking about it years on, he starts to just, he breaks down. It's, 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 it's just, it's so sad for him to even talk about. In the middle of the ring, Don Dumfrey, not understanding Perrette's condition, he actually began an interview with Emil Griffith. I want to congratulate you, Emil, but we're all holding our breath to see how Benny Kid Perrette is. Emil replied politely, thank you very much, Don. I'm very proud to be the Worldweight Champion again. I hope Perrette is feeling very good, but they won't tell me how he feels. Then Dumfrey asked Emil to take a look at our screen, which showed a replay of the knockout in slow motion videotape. I mean, it couldn't get any worse. He asked him to actually describe what happened. If you remember, it was very exciting, uh, Dumfrey said. Emil was just in a daze as he watched himself beat the life out of Benny Kid Perrette before saying, it was a series of punches in the corner. After I hurt him, he went through the ropes. I kept on punching. Dumfrey encouraged Emil to look more closely at the images. And uh, he said, I, Emil said, I hurt him there. And, and then I was punching inside. Dumfrey ex- was actually excited. He was obviously trying to keep the, the, the millions of viewers at home engaged in it uh, he was excited about the slow motion replay it was the first time the slow, the slow motion replay had ever been used in television history and he said look at that beautiful camera work there everyone in the whole stadium fell silent as they watched in absolute horror while Emil repeated himself I just kept punching I just kept punching and it is just it's a surreal moment to watch it really is silence fell over the ring and a colleague mumbled to Pete Hamill, I think we just saw a gay murder. Journalist Norman Mailer was also in attendance that night in a ringside seat and he wrote, as he took those 18 punches, something happened to everyone who was in a psychic range of the event. Some part of his death reached out to us. As he went down, the sound of Griffith's punches echoed in the mind like a heavy axe in the distance, chopping into a wet log. Perrette died on his feet. Perrette was taken to hospital where two blood clots were found. The first one was on the left side of the brain and the second on the right. 
On the surface of the brain, there was clear evidence of bleeding. Both clots were drained of 8 cubic centimetres of fluid. They had also found evidence of swelling of the brain. Now, for hours just after the fight, Emil tried to gain entry to Perret's hospital room, but he couldn't get in, so he raced down the street and ended up on 42nd Street, where passers-by, who have heard the news, showered him with insults. He told the press two days later, The last two nights, I just sleep and wake, sleep and wake all the time. I don't know if I even want to be champ now. It seems like it just means trouble. I wanted to win the title back, but not like this. It's turned into a nightmare. I'm sorry about Perrette. God knows I'm sorry about Perrette. The governor of New York, Nelson Rockefeller, sent a telegram to the chairman of New York State Athletic Commission to order an investigation into boxing, which would start with the submission of full and specific reports on the fight within the next 24 hours. Rockefeller promised that if negligence had caused a homicide, he would refer the case to a grand jury. The chief of police at West 47th Street Station had also instigated his own investigation and his officers interviewed ringside officials and made further inquiries at Roosevelt Hospital. It was suggested that if or when Perrette died, they would take further statements to decide whether a homicide had been committed. Emil Griffith could possibly be charged with murder. Attentions now turned to banning the sport with an article in the New York Times arguing that the question everybody is asking is whether the fight was allowed to go on too long. A better question might be whether it or any other professional prize fight should be allowed to start. New York State Assembly Max Tertian chimed in and he said there's no reason to have this kind of sport in our town. We have such wonderful sports, such helpful sports as golf and baseball and basketball and swimming and all the other types of good and decent sports. There's no reason to have this. Well, everyone's trying to point the blame, point the finger at people. Yeah, there's, I think there's a, an accumulation of stuff here. But Emmanuel Alfaro, well, he falsely uh, told reporters that at nine o'clock the previous night on March 27, that Benny had opened his eyes when he turned and moved. He insisted that positive movements were made. Perret was helped to a sitting position and he opened his eyes. Although it was a glassy stare, his eyes closed when he was placed in a horizontal position again. Well, Emil broke down when he read the words from the letters he received. They accused him of being a heartless killer and a murderous faggot. He also had to endure abusive calls from unknown people who asked him how it felt to have killed a man. Benny Perret was still fighting for his life in hospital and they still considered him a killer. Now, Hispanic fans actually gathered outside a Mills Hotel to shout abuse at the devastated world champion. Clancy and Howie convinced Griffith to head up to the Catskills for some respite, and he agreed. When they arrived, Gill read Griffith a quote in the New York Herald Tribune from Willie T- Towell uh, that had made him feel some release, and it said, I hope. Perrette makes it for his family's sake, but mainly for the sake of Emil Griffith. Then on April 1st, 1962, the hospital released a statement. Benny Perrette is fighting hard, but his condition has not changed for the past few days. He's still in a critical condition. A day later, it was revealed that Perrette had caught pneumonia and his coma had deepened slightly. Then in the early hours of the morning on April 3rd, 1962, at 1.55am, 
Benny Kid Perret passed away. A black Cadillac took the body of Perret to the morgue where an autopsy was carried out. Nothing come of that autopsy. I think everybody knew how he died and nothing ever happened to him. He wasn't charged with murder or anything. But he lay, as in Perret, he lay in the open casket and over the next day, 17,000 people filled past to pay their respects to, that fallen, to the fallen fighter. When the plane landed, because he was shipped off to Miami, where he was to be buried, another 20,000 people arrived at the Albert Funeral Home and slowly walked past the reopened coffin. Now, on the morning of Benny Perrette's burial, another boxer, Tony Hunsaker, the heavyweight best known for being the defeated opponent in Cassius Clay's first professional contract, lay in a coma in hospital in Bluefield, West Virginia. He had undergone emergency brain surgery the previous night after he was knocked out in the 10th round by another journeyman, Joe Shotgun Sheldon. Hunsaker's brain had a blood clot similar in size and scope to one of the two clots that had killed Perrette. The difference was Hunsaker pulled through. Now, he had become friendly with Cassius Clay, who we know as Muhammad Ali, who had just turned 20, and he actually spoke about the impact these injuries were having on the sport at the time. And he said, The idea is to fight. I don't like the fact that a guy, Perrette, got killed, or that Tony Hunsaker is poorly. But this happens every 10 years or so in boxing. We should be more worried about people dying up in the sky. What about all these aeroplane crashes? They kill a hundred people every time. I cry like the devil getting on an aeroplane, but I ain't afraid of the ring no matter what's just happened. I'm the next champ. (laughs) He just has to add that in at the end, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Now, thankfully, planes have gotten safer with science. Can the same be said about boxing? Well, that's another conversation for another day. But Benny Perrette was buried at the Our Lady of Mercy Cemetery on the remote western fringes of Miami at noon on Saturday, April the 7th, 1962. Exactly two weeks earlier, almost to the minute, he and Emil Griffith had weighed in for the final act of their tragic trilogy. Emil sat alone in his hotel room in upstate New York. His request to attend the funeral had been declined. Lucy Perrette said, I don't want him there, I never want to see him again. Emil quit boxing after Howie's wife died not long after Perrette. He had had enough of the death that surrounded him. Clancy tried to ease his pain with letters from well-wishers, but nothing worked until a letter arrived from South Africa. It was from Willie Toel. His words broke down barriers for Emil. He was overcome with emotion, but it was enough encouragement to make him return to his old life of boxing once again. A great, I mean, from from Willie sending. All, it's a long. I mean, we could have put it in, but you know, it's it's like a long letter from him, and you know, it just it just says to him, you know, he managed to get through it, and he's saying he will, and it just encouraged him to to get back into it again. Um, I suppose the big question here is, just quickly, we'll go through some reasons or, or who pointed the finger at who and whose fault it was. Uh, Perrette's wife Lucy, she made up her mind. The referee should have stopped the fight, but I blame Griffith. He knew my husband was knocked out, but he kept hitting him. He was very mean. I know that Griffith wanted to win, but he shouldn't have tried to kill my husband. Some suggest that Ruby Goldstein was too slow and that he should have intervened a lot sooner than he did. He said, I don't think there is anybody except for God himself who could have had that much foresight to realise that would have happened to a fighter in that condition. 
Well, Alfaro, he also blamed Goldstein. He directed the finger to someone else. Of course he would. But others say it was his fault because he should have fought back to that former fight and not allowed him to fight Griffith in the first place, let alone three and a half months later. Trainer Bob Jackson explained Perrette's death as former ate the mill, but a mill picked up the check. Pete Hamill said this of Alfaro, and he said the trouble was that he fit almost too easily into that stereotype of the manager stroke promoter exploiting the fire. He actually told, this is what, this is Hamil said that, that he had got this information from someone that Alfaro told somebody, now I have to go and find a new boy. Oh, oh wow. It's just uh, unreal. Well, the other alternative, uh, so, I mean, who else can you blame? The other one is Perrette's Corner. They, sh- you know, they've been blamed by other people as well for, um, for their delay in stopping that fight when he was in trouble, you know, they could have just jumped in the ring. Uh, it shouldn't really just be left to Goldstein. Um, so yeah, you've got, is it Griffith's, is it, is it Emil's fault? You know, is it Clancy's fault for getting into Tenning to keep punching? Is it Ruby Goldstein's fault for delaying it? Is it Alfaro's fault for letting him fight in the first place? Or was it Perrette's corner for not stopping it early? I mean, you've got five different excuses there. Make your own mind up. I mean, I think they're all at fault somewhere along the line. Not so much Emil, though, because he's a fighter. That's what he's going to do. It's very difficult, isn't it, with this situation? Because you've got to remember something that we need to hark back to here is although Perrette didn't deserve to die... He had put that much mental abuse towards Emil Griffith in them two fights, in the build-up to them two fights, that Emil Griffith just had enough. And at that opportune moment, at the moment where he knew he had him, or he knew he had him hurt, he, he literally takes out his frustration on it. And he said that. He said that in his own words, he says that, as we mentioned from a quote that he meant, that he had. And understandably... In that red mist moment, he couldn't stop the punches flowing. But then also, it's the responsibility of the corner. It's the responsibility of the referee. Someone surrounding that fight, involved in that fight in some capacity, should have stopped it. It's as simple as that. But then it also goes back to the question of why the hell was Benny Perrette in the ring in the first place? That was because his that was because his manager Alfaro was a greedy bastard. And he wanted to get <laughs> yeah. that money while it was there. Because if he wouldn't have took that fight right there and then, they probably wouldn't have got the money they got for the fight. Let's, let's be honest. You know how these big fights happen. A lot of fighters do end up going into it. Never 100% because they know if they cancel this fight at this point, will they ever get the fight again? Or will it make the money that's being put on the table now? So Alfaro, with obviously the agreement of Perrette, has gone in and, 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 well, it's not even so much the agreement. He's probably pushed him into it and coerced him to get in there and say, look, you're planning to retire after this fight anyway. Let's get the paycheck now. Let's have this final fight go out in a blaze of glory. And then that's that. He didn't know he was going to go in there and never walk out of that ring again. And yet, no. he was never really checked properly. The medical staff at the time didn't have the science behind them to, to properly check them. Or... The New York State Athletic Commission should also be held responsible because surely at that point they should have intervened. With a beating such as the former beating, really, he should have been suspended for a certain amount of time. But he wasn't. He was just left to go out. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. He was left to go out of the ring for three and a half months and left left to go in a fight against somebody like Emil Griffith, who it was going to be a ferocious fight. I mean, would 
would he, if he had gone into a, an easier fight, would signs have become more apparent at that point and maybe he could have been saved? There, there is a lot of ifs and buts and shoulda, woulda, couldas. Unfortunately, Benny Perrette lost his life that night, but there are multiple variables here. There's multiple people that are, you can point the finger at and say it was their fault, but I think me, it boils down to Alfaro. Alfaro shouldn't have let him get in the ring that night. They shouldn't have, he shouldn't have pushed him to go in the ring that night. And people like Goldstein, people like the New York State Athletic Commission, they should have had a little bit of a, a better understanding of what had previously gone on. To and I'm, I'm not slagging Ruby Goldstein. He's long gone now. He's not on this planet anymore. But let's be honest, mm. he was a world-famous referee. He should have stepped in. The New York State Athletic Commission should have done something more before the fight, knowing the beating that he'd suffered against Fulmer. There's, there's lots of things that you can say that should have happened. They just didn't. And unfortunately, Perrette lost his life and it left a scar. And it left them mental scars for Emil Griffith, who in that moment was doing what he was in the ring to do. And yet, yeah. that man had to live with that for the rest of his life. Yeah. He, he did, and and you, you, I mean, you're right. For me, I don't think he should have been in that ring. I think there was enough people around to have stopped him. He's moaning about his headaches as well. You know, there was even even early, and he, where he sits in the corner and sits there, sort of blankly, and you have to pinch him to get his attention. That is alarm bells right there, and that was early in his career. You know, there was something not right with him. It wasn't just a mill. And you know, I hate to say it, the guy that sort of said a mill sort of picked up the paycheck at the end after former, basically. Uh, Hate him for eating for dinner. That is pretty accurate description of what happened there. It's 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 awful. A man has lost his life um, in the ring, and it was witnessed in front of millions on television, which was just awful. But we just, I'll just quickly start off with the the roundup and the rest of Emil's career because there is a little bit in here. So the years that went by, Griffith actually began to refuse to disguise his sexuality, and he would end up going to gay bars near the Port Authority on Eighth Avenue or down in Greenwich Village in New York. Now, it was even remembered that after fighting at the Garden in the main event, he would actually show up in the bars wearing his boxing trunks and shoes, <laughs> no shirt, and a mink coat. <laughs> uh, it was uh, illegal in New York for two men to be on the dance floor without a woman present. Emil was caught during a police raid, but when they found out that he was the world champion boxer, well, they protected him, as did the boxing world. Just before his fight in 1964, a match in London against Brian Curvis, um, who had who, who, Curvis actually told his terrified wife Barbara, "I have a date with a killer, Emil Griffith," and uh, she replied that she would not be coming to the fight. No way. Curvis uh, actually tried to reassure her by saying that, but the killer's lost his killer instinct, and that is precisely what happened with Emil. In his next fight, even he backed away when he had someone in the corner. He lost that that aggression and but um, Emil did decision Curvis in 15 rounds and then he actually presented Mrs. Curvis with a nice bonnet <laughs> he had designed himself. Emil did admit years later that the uh, Perrette third fight I never wanted to hurt a guy again I was so scared to hit someone I was always holding back. Now Emil continued to fight even with the nightmares Dreams of Benny walking down the street, calling out greetings, extending his hand. But when Emil takes the hand, it's as cold and clammy, and it awakes Emil from that nightmare, essentially, in his own bath of sweat. So he turned to the glitz and glamour instead to try and 
use that as a coping mechanism, buying brand new Lincolns sprinkled with glitter, wearing colourful clothes. He's, he's certainly massively out of the closet at this point. Uh, a big black leather bag along with a tiny white poodle cradled in his arm. And even Mother of Pearl, a luxury, substantial women's wear brand based in London that celebrates individuality, authenticity and sustainability. But still, people refuse to believe that he was gay. I mean... I don't know how you couldn't believe he was gay even in that time. But to be fair, it was the 60s, so eccentric dress sense was quite common. But not for a boxer. Now, when questioned again if he was gay, he would reply using the derogatory phrase, I'm nobody's faggot. In the end, Griffith finished his career with more championship round under his belt than anyone in boxing history. 51 more than Sugar Ray Robinson, 69 more than Muhammad Ali, at the age of 39, and after 111 pro fights, 26 main events, more than anyone else in the combined history of the old and new Madison Square Gardens, Clancy told the five-time world champion to call it a day, following his defeat to Alan Minter. Yeah, Ramil went on uh, to train boxers in New York City by day, uh, one Laporte being one of them, and uh, he tended a bar at uh, Jack Miller's pub in New Jersey by night uh, after losing his job in the youth detention centre or facility in New Jersey. Uh, the reason was because he actually, not he hadn't adopted, but he had allowed this Luis Rodrigo, 16 at the time, having trouble. Um, he actually allowed him, he, he attended the centre of this kid, but he, he moved him in and that's why he lost his job. But then after Laporte lost to Costa Zoo, uh, Emil decided to go to a bar in Manhattan. That was the night that a gang of men jumped him. They beat him with pipes or bats, couldn't quite work out what it was, uh, kicked him with their heavy boots like a dog, robbed him and left him for dead on the street. He actually managed to get back to his feet. He tried. He actually got to a cab and the men had witnessed it. They caught up with him and they began to slam the door on his body over and over again until he dropped again on the floor unconscious. Not quite sure what happened with a cab driver. He must have just drove off, but somehow... Emil managed to get himself onto a train going in the wrong direction. While he was on this train, he was slipping in and out of consciousness. But then he eventually managed to stagger home. He nearly dies in hospital. His battered kidneys foul. He goes on dialysis. Uh, his spine gets infected. And the severity of the sight of the beating suggests a gay bashing, a hate crime. But no one will ever know. By the time Emil comes home two months later, he remembers absolutely nothing of it. Now, to complete this story, Luis, the adopted son of Emil, and Benny Perrette Jr. actually ended up working in the same postal office in Manhattan. Benny Jr. even met with Griffith several years later, and he hugged him, and he told him that he wasn't to blame for his father's death. In 2008, Emil told his friend Ron Ross, a writer, I keep thinking how strange it is. I kill a man, and most people understand and forgive me. However, I love a man, and many say this makes me an evil person. To so many people, this is an unforgivable sin. It's yeah. a story. It's a story and a half, isn't it? I mean, like these legendary oh, wow. these these legendary nights that we've been covering. You know, it's it's legendary, but it's not legendary in the way that maybe a Gatti Ward is legendary. It's legendary in the fact that these these two guys, these two competitors, had a trilogy with each other. There was so much needle. I mean. Do people, after listening to this, have a bad opinion of Benny Perrette because of his of his homophobia? 
towards Emilio mm. Griffith. I mean, it, it was shocking. It was obviously, you know, an uneducated time for people with homosexuality. It wasn't accepted by the world. So it's the same as racism as well. It's the same thing. In it. And that still obviously occurs today. So does hate crimes against homosexual people. All that stuff still happens mm. today. But back then, it was even. It was, I'd probably say it was even worse. Maybe people would argue wrong. I'm not a gay man, or I'm not in, in a certain ethnic minority, which uh, subjects me to being abused in some way, shape, or form. So I can't say I've personally experienced that. So I wouldn't really know if it is still as bad. But reading all the stories that we've read over the years for our podcast and looking at the times and trying to put ourselves into into that frame of mind and that period of time. You kind of get the feeling it was, you know, this is, is, is an unbelievable sin to be committing. So do people dislike Benny Perrette for that? Will they hate him for being that way? I, I don't know. I mean, I can't say after doing this story and going into the depths of how bad things were that I could honestly dislike the guy uh, as a person because mm-hmm. it seemed like he was just trying to do what he wanted to do as a as a professional. I think he was just very uneducated and because it was so frowned upon at the time, it, although it's not acceptable and I don't condone it, I still do feel for the fact that this guy eventually loses his life in the ring as a result of doing a sport that he loved. And at the end of the day, Emil Griffith, all he wanted to do was to check on the guy and he never got the opportunity to do so. So that must have been difficult. Them demons must have never been able to be laid to rest, even though years later, Benny Jr. says, look, it's, it's not your fault. You know, it's, this is not your fault what happened. He, he must have... He must have still had them demons there all the way until the end. He must have done because that that is horrific. It's horrific what happened. It's horrific the tale in in itself, and it's it's really sad. It is really sad. You've got one guy on one side who is being, you know, he's being abused because of his sexuality, and then you've got the guy on the other side who ends up losing his life. It's just the overall tale of it is so sad, but everything surrounding it's just so thrilling. The fights are so thrilling between one another, and if you ever wanted to check out a trilogy or a trilogy that's really underrated, barring the fact that Benny Perrette dies at the end of the third fight, this whole trilogy overall is is, is quite compelling to watch. It's brilliant. It definitely deserves to be up there, you know, in the legendary night stories. And this is why we've covered it as a tale, you know, because I think that it needs to be brought to the forefront. And these types of stories, they have to be brought to the forefront to understand the context behind it. People post that particular picture all the time on social media of Perrette looking mm-hmm. like he does at the end of that fight. People post it and they, they put the captions to it about what happened. But did they really go into this much detail? Did they really talk about how Benny Perrette was, you know, he was he was a homophobe. He, he didn't like the fact that Griffith was gay and he'd mock him in interviews. Do people really know that? Well, if you didn't, you do now. And I'd like to know if that changes your opinion. You know, as a listener, as a boxing fan, does that change your opinion on Perrette? Does that make you feel sorry for Griffith? I, I honestly, I genuinely love to know because I, I mean, we, I've given my thoughts on it. Johnston, I'll pass it to you and let you give your thoughts for the listeners. But this this tale, I, I have enjoyed it. I really have enjoyed telling the tale. I just feel so sorry for for the pair of them, really, at the end of it all. Yeah, same here. It is a uh, it's, it's fascinating twists and turns, isn't it? and and you hit the nail on the head, Benny. Perrette, he wasn't educated at all. He was completely illiterate. He couldn't read. And there were times in um, in the in one in the book with Emil's book uh, where they refer to Manuel uh, Emmanuel Alfaro actually reading the newspapers to him and making things out 
a little worse than they were. He would change the words and stuff. He was like a father figure to Perret, and he wasn't a good man to have as a father figure. All he wanted was the money. And whereas Emil had them two father figures in Howie and Clancy, and they looked after him. They wanted to be look literally where their wives were like his mother, his, his other mothers as well. It was they literally they knew he had this sexual preferences but they didn't really question it and as as sugar ray robertson said they just sort of put it over there and, and that's what they did they knew it but they warmed to him they took him in and i think that's the difference with perret uneducated and being directed the wrong way i think that's what made him sort of goad a mill and i think that would have been alfaro that would have told him to do that he would have said you know say these things some of the stuff as well he's, he's speaking in spanish to american reporters so all of this information we get from the american reporter is what alfaro says how much did perret actually say we don't really know because he didn't speak brilliant english you know so it is i think he was manipulated badly it's just it's a it's a mad tale it really is it has everything isn't it it really does and and like, like you know, it's not just about the fights; it's about everything else. But the fights itself are are terrific, and obviously, the the fatal third fight is um, it's just horror in that final round. Um, but yeah, oh, what what a what a mad, crazy story! And the fact that this was only the beginning of Emil Griffith's career. After all that, I mean, he still went on to become a five-time world champion and fight some some of the best fighters around, like Dick Tiger and Nino Beneventini uh, and. and um, even Carlos Monzon. I mean, he has so many as his other part of his career. I mean, that's, it's just a whole fascinating story. It really is. I think that makes for a good uh, a good nod to career profiles in the future for Emil <laughs> yeah. Griffith. Definitely something worth doing. You know, when you touch on that that second half of his career, essentially you've got the career leading up to the death of Benny Perret, and then the second half when he fights guys like Carlos Monzon and he fights guys like Alan Minter, of course, as well. You know, our own yeah. Alan Minter. So there's there's a lot more story to tell with Emil Griffith. But we hope you've enjoyed listening to it. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this tale of Emil Griffith and Benny Perret. This trilogy underrated trilogy of fights ecstasy and agony all in the same story we've really thoroughly enjoyed telling you this story and if you've enjoyed listening to it please let us know on social media at legend night pod or btr boxing pod on twitter the facebook page btr boxing podcast network it's also the same on instagram as well I want to give a big shout out to all the patrons who support us separately. We provide you with early access to this episode so you will have listened to this before all you general release listeners. And if you've not already checked out the Patreon service, please go and do so. Check out the membership tiers that are available. There are episodes that have not been released to the general public, which is a benefit of becoming a patron. So please do go check out patreon.com forward slash btr boxing podcast network we thoroughly hope that you've enjoyed this tale of emil griffith versus benny perrette
Sports Social Podcast Network.